Okay, hello, and thank you for listening to the Chiropractic Research Podcast Series. My name is Dr. Dean Smith. I am a clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Before we get on with the interview today, I just wanted to say thanks so much to all of the listeners of the podcast out there. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, thanks for joining in. I really appreciate all the great reviews on iTunes and the emails that people send me. If you like what you hear, please leave a great review on iTunes so we can attract even more chiropractors to listen to the best in chiropractic research. I read all of the feedback that I get and wanted to share one with you from Dr. Roy Cheng in Australia. He says, just wanted to say thank you for your Chiropractic Science Podcast. It's been such an inspiration to listen to all the greats in the world of chiropractic research. It has certainly made an impact on my practice and gives me a tremendous amount of certainty in what we do as chiropractors. Keep up all the good work. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Cheng, and I really appreciate that feedback. I'm happy to report that the podcast is really growing in numbers. As of a couple of weeks ago, the podcast was the second most popular chiropractic podcast on player.fm and in the top 10 on iTunes. Okay, so just wanted to give you that update. Getting back to today's show, you probably know that my goals for producing these research interviews are to get the word out about chiropractic research from the experts that are actually doing the research to encourage collaboration of researchers, and to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. I'd also like to point out that Chiropractic Science has partnered with chirocredit.com to make these podcasts possible. Well, let's get on with the interview uh, with Dr. Stuber today. I'm really excited that uh, in this interview, we'll discuss Dr. Kent Stuber's research interests, his role as editor of the Journal of the Canadian Chiropractic Association, and how chiropractors can get involved in research. Dr. Kent Stuber has been in practice in Calgary, Alberta, Canada for nearly 14 years. He did his chiropractic training at Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College. He completed a Master of Science degree in Health and Social Care Research from the University of Sheffield in 2008. He is currently a master's degree in philosophy and a PhD student at the University of South Wales, studying patient-centeredness in chiropractic. Kent is an adjunct professor in CMCC's Division of Graduate Education and Research. He has published over 30 articles in a, over a dozen different peer-reviewed scientific journals. His research interests include patient-centered care, sports injuries, spinal stenosis, the psychometric properties and use of orthopedic testing, as well as the treatment of pregnancy-related musculoskeletal conditions. Kent is a member of the International Task Force on Diagnosis and Management of Lumbar Spinal Stenosis, as well as the Guideline Implementation Group of the Canadian Chiropractic Association's Clinical Practice Guideline Initiative. In July 2015, Kent became the fifth editor-in-chief of the Journal of the Canadian Chiropractic Association, a peer-reviewed journal now in its 60th year of publication. That is so awesome, Kent, and uh, thank you so much for coming on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Oh, thanks a lot, Dean. Thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure. So let's uh, get on with the uh, interview here, Dr. Stuber, and the first thing I want to know is how did you become interested in becoming a chiropractor? Well, I think like uh, like a lot of chiropractors, um, I had a really good experience as a patient. I, I got injured playing football in high school and did almost a year's worth of physical therapy uh, to no avail. And eventually my dad kind of got uh, sick of taking me to the, phys to the physical therapist and said, well, you're going to go to my chiropractor and my chiropractor, he's a very old school chiropractor. He graduated from Palmer in 1950, but it took him maybe three or four visits to fix what other professionals hadn't been able to fix in almost a year. Uh, so that initial impression and just several times getting hurt in sports and other things and uh, chiropractor kept fixing me up. So I, it's, it became definitely an area of interest and I always knew I wanted to do something in, in some kind of health, health profession. That's great. So how old were you at the time? 
I would have been about 16, uh, 15, I'd say. Okay. Okay. So that got you interested, obviously, in becoming a chiropractor, from the sounds of it. And so then you went to CMCC, and you have practiced for almost 14 years now since graduation. How would you describe your practice currently? And I'm curious also if your research over the years has changed the way you practice. Yeah. Uh, well, the practice I'm, I'm in right now, I, I practice with my wife. We were, we were classmates at CMCC. And for about 10 years, we had our own small practice, you know, kind of a mom and pop shop. But we, uh, we actually, in the last two, two and a half years, we moved into a, into a large multidisciplinary setting. Um, I, th- I think our practice is fairly general practice. Uh, we see lots of very active people, some athletes, some seniors, uh, probably not a ton of pediatrics uh, other than sports injuries. Um, I describe my style as pretty evidence informed, uh, using diversified adjusting mostly and, and doing a fair amount of soft tissue therapy and, and a lot of exercise prescription as well. That's great. Um, when t- talking about how it's, how it's research changed the way I practice, I think probably the biggest thing that my involvement with research does for me in practice is that I think I'm, pr- I'm probably a pretty early adopter when it comes to implementing things that I read. Um, or the research that, that I'm currently doing. Uh, that could be the way I approach patients from a diagnostic standpoint, a way of measuring outcomes, the way I treat, or just, you know, kind of a general outlook with patients. Um, as an example, you know, my interest in patient-centeredness has really kind of caused me to examine the way that, that I work with my patients. There's some aspects of patient-centeredness that I actually don't think I was all that great at. Uh, things like goal-setting is an example. Um, but you know, when you're in practice, it's, it's always a work in progress. And, and if naturally I, I also think that what I do in practice, uh, really influence the things that interest my research or the guide my research. Perfect. Yeah. I couldn't agree more with, with all of that, uh, that you just said, I, I find the exact same thing as well. And in particular, just one example for the early adoption of stuff that you, you know, materials that you may get from research and bring it into practice. I, I remember changing, uh, I read one study one afternoon about the stroke issue. I think it was Dr. Cassidy's. And then I changed my informed consent <laughs> the same afternoon <laughs> and, yep. uh, it was up and going the next day in, in the office. So yeah, that's, that's great. Well, I, I had a, I had a similar experience. I was when, when the neck pain task force released their findings, they actually did it in Saskatchewan in Canada at a conference. And yeah, it was, you know, when they started talking about the stroke issue, you know, next, the next day in clinic, Monday morning, I had a totally different approach to it. When patients were, you know, were telling me that they had concerns about the stroke issues. Like, well, here's the latest research, like brand new. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. How, how it can go. And I think that's the way it's supposed to be, but obviously we're, in a unique position that way, but uh, the faster we can get it out to clinicians, the better for sure. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it really speaks to the, the whole issue of knowledge translation. And, you know, I think increasingly chiropractic researchers are getting better and better at acknowledging the fact that knowledge translation is really important. I um, mean, getting the word out to clinicians and getting them to implement things um, and find, trying to find new ways to do so. For sure. Well, hopefully this podcast is one of those ways as well to, to get that information out. Uh, it's pretty quick to produce a podcast and, uh, you can just get, you know, information out there. It's just one way, but certainly there are a lot of different ways. What made you decide that you wanted to go back to pursue? Thank you. Thank you. What made you decide that you wanted to go back to school to pursue the master's degree and, and now the PhD? Um, well, with with the master's degree, I think the thing I I got involved shortly after graduating from CMCC. I got involved in writing a few little papers and and involved in a few projects. Um, and early on, I realized that I was I was in over my head. I I didn't know enough, and and I really needed to get some formal training in research if if research was something that I was going to do. So, um, you know, I spoke to some some good good people at CMCC who who provided me some guidance as to a program to look at and. Uh, and it was it was a great fit for me. Um, and now the PhD, the PhD is sort of the next progression in, in becoming an in, and and being an independent research researcher. When I when I finished my master's, I I think I knew I'd always 
I knew I'd want to pursue a PhD, but uh, as I'm sure you know, the timing needs to be right for you and your family and everything else in your life. And, and I needed to find the right program and the right people to work with and, and learn from. Exactly. Well, I'd like to explore, can you tell us about your PhD and particularly interested in this whole concept of patient-centeredness in chiropractic? Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really lucky because I'm doing it at the University of South Wales. So one of the things that really attracted me to USW is that they actually have a chiropractic program there. Uh, my supervisor, uh, Professor Peter McCarthy, he's been, he's been teaching chiropractors over in Wales for quite some time. And he's also one of the associate editors of the journal uh, Chiropractic and Manual Therapies. We, we developed this topic because the notion of health care quality has been something that I've been really interested in for quite a while, especially with respect to how it would apply to chiropractic. Patient-centeredness is, is a component of healthcare quality. It's an area that's been explored increasingly in other professions, but really it hasn't been explored too much in chiropractic. And so we're kind of trying to break some new ground and, and explore that. That's great. And I'll ask you more questions about patient centeredness and what the definition is coming up. So uh, we'll uh, continue on with some, some other things that I'm curious about. You've, you've written about a lot of different topics. Um, A lot of, a lot of chiropractic researchers do that. I found, Um, but I'm curious what got you interested in, in the, ideas of chiropractic and pregnancy, sports injuries, spinal stenosis. Uh, how, how did you get into all those variety of topics for research? You know, as, as you know, I, I guess classifying myself as a clinician researcher, a lot of my research questions come from seeing patients. Um, either a question and the patient will ask me and I don't know and I, and I have to try to find an answer or else it's a tough condition that I'm not sure how to treat. Stenosis is a good example of that. Um, I can remember early on in practice having a really tough patient with stenosis and they weren't responding very well to what I was trying to do. And, and I asked a few of my colleagues what, what they do with stenosis and we were all kind of in the same boat. It seemed like it was a condition that we all sort of struggled with. So we decided, okay, we better dig into the literature. And that ended up turning into a review that we, that we published in the Journal of Chiropractic Medicine. That kind of evolved and led to a relationship with Carlo Amendolia over at the University of Toronto and through him, been able to, to work with other a lot of other stenosis researchers like Mike Schneider and uh, Christy Tompkins Lane, Raja Rampersad, and and that's led to I think it's been about half a dozen papers on stenosis and and being on the the task force for you know, diagnosis and management of stenosis and really that all kind of started with one patient who who really got me thinking. Awesome sports injury with sports injuries. Like I said, I see a fair number of patients uh, who either you know are athletes or would describe themselves as athletes, and and they get hurt. And and it, as it's a, a component of my practice, it again those those questions would just come up. Um, with pregnancy, I I can remember actually as being as a student uh, being frustrated because you know when you're in school, your professors will tell you that uh, adjusting pr- pregnant patients with low back pain or posterior pelvic pain works really well. But then when I actually got into my internship and I had a pregnant patient, my supervisor wanted uh, wanted me to give some papers supporting the, the treatment plan that I was proposing for them. I really couldn't come up with much. So, again, sort of sometimes seeing holes in the literature will lead to some of the projects that uh, that I get involved with. Yeah, I like that. Uh, that's really reflective. Uh, <clears throat> that's excellent. Now, you've authored over 30 publications in a broad range of peer-reviewed journals such as Spine, JMPT, European Spinal Journal, uh, European Spine Journal, and many others. So I want to talk about some of your articles, and I'm going to basically cluster some uh, three or four articles into one concept uh, as we go through here. But uh, the first the first one is what your PhD is about, and that is patient-centered chiropractic care. And you just had a paper published in Chiropractic and Manual Therapies, and I'm I'm going to make the assumption that this is uh, partially at least what your PhD is is uh, is dealing with. Uh, but the paper was entitled "Assessing Patient Care in Patients with Chronic Health Conditions Attending Chiropractic Practice: Protocol for a Mixed Method Study." Um, so the, the first question I have when getting into this is, could you 
give us a, a definition of patient-centered care or, or what does patient-centered care mean mean to you? Yeah, there, there are some sort of formal definitions of, of patient-centered care. The Institute of Medicine uh, has, you know, has, has a good definition of it, but basically it's, it's care that respects and responds to patients' needs and their preferences and their values. So it's kind of holistic care that considers all aspects of a patient's life and, and making sure that a patient has a say in clinical decisions. It's not um, having you know, kind of top-down approach to, to patient management um, it's you know trying to have the doctor and the patient on on equal footing and, and working together. Got it. Yeah. So one of the things that that I hear, maybe we can just bring this up now. One of the things I hear in practice uh, a lot, well, from other chiropractors, let's say, is that well, there's no there's no real evidence for this or that. But when you've got a patient in front of you with a condition and they want your care. Um, and you're hard pressed to find any scientific studies, uh, that's patient centered care, isn't it? I mean, they're coming to you. They prefer to, to be with you as opposed to another practitioner or another doctor. And even though there's not a ton of scientific evidence for whatever condition they present with, that's still part of evidence-based care that their values and, and, and their goals, right? Yeah, the, uh, yeah, it is very much that is in the you know it, working in patient centeredness and and you know part of evidence informed practice is just you know clinician experience that's that's a component of it you know um, I think there there became a real devotion to the you know the RCT um, and when you look at the early writings and you know a lot of the the authors on evidence based you know evidence based or evidence informed healthcare will say well. The evidence is a component, but you also have to take patient preferences and clinician experience and clinician expertise into account. Uh, we kind of got away from that over time. Um, and it, there almost became almost this slavish devotion to just systematic reviews and meta-analyses and our NRCTs. We have to, we have to consider the whole component of the, of the patient experience. Yeah, very good. Very good. Do you have any examples from your practice, uh, with patient centeredness, what, uh, what, uh, you know, someone coming in, uh, to your practice, a patient or, or just from your perspective? Yeah. You know, one of the things that I, I really think about is like, I, when I think about coming out of school, um, as an intern, you know, very often treatment planning would be very formulaic. You know, you'd, uh, say you'd have somebody with low back pain and they, you know, you'd have this sort of formula. You know, I want to treat this patient three times a week for two or three weeks, and then follow that with the reevaluation. Well, and that type of formula may be fairly evidence based. Like there can be, there's you can find studies that that can support you know certain types of treatment planning formulas, but that doesn't necessarily make it patient centered. You know, patients have their own lives. They can't necessarily get to your clinic two or three times a week. Um, so in a patient-centered environment, you'd provide several treatment options and frequencies and, and work with the patient to decide what works best for them. You know, maybe you have somebody who, you know, I practice here in Alberta, and we frequently have patients who work, work out in the field uh, a lot um, and in the oil fields. And, you know, they might be gone for two weeks at a time to, or three weeks out of, out of a month. So to say to them that I need to see you three times a week, um, that's not going to work for them. So it's working with them to see, you know, what combination of, you know, maybe in-office treatments and home exercise or other things that they can do for themselves, what's going to hopefully help them. Um, that's uh, that's probably one of the examples that I sort of have in my head when I'm looking at things like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good example. I, I appreciate that. Now, for this particular study that uh, just came out on chiropractic and manual therapies, what what are you going to be looking at in this particular study, and and what do you expect to find? Well, we're looking we're looking to see basically how congruent the care provided by chiropractors for patients with chronic conditions, and we've we've left it open uh, any kind of chronic conditions, not just musculoskeletal, but it could be you know somebody with chronic asthma or anything. We want to see how the the care provided by chiropractors sort of adheres to the chronic care model. Uh, so the chronic care model it's a patient centered model for managing patients with chronic conditions. 
And to do that, we'll use an instrument called the Patient Assessment of Chronic Illness Care, the PACIC. Um, we'll also be interviewing patients and chiropractors to get their perspectives on patient-centeredness and on the, the chiropractor-patient relationship. Um, in terms of what we're going to find, I, I'm not really sure what to expect. Um, we're, I'm trying to go in with, with fairly open eyes. Certainly, you know, chiropractic has always enjoyed a reputation of being a very patient-centered profession. You know, there have been studies where, you know, if you interview interview medical specialists or medical doctors or other health professionals, they look at as our profession as being a very patient-centered one. Um, so I'm hoping that we can give some evidence that either supports or refutes that statement, and then uh, and as well get some some interesting data from the from the interviews as well, and then sort of taking that all together, try to paint a picture of where the, pref- the profession stands on this topic and see if there's, if there's issues that we need to address going forward. Yeah, very good. So another issue that you've done a lot of work in is the spinal stenosis, and we've talked about that a little bit already. You've been an author on several of these studies relating to st- spinal stenosis. Examples uh, would include the consensus document uh, you mentioned on the clinical diagnosis of lumbar spinal stenosis and non-operative treatment for lumbar spinal stenosis with neurogenic claudication. From what you've learned being an author on these papers and your own experience, as you mentioned in practice early on, where you weren't quite sure exactly you know, how to get the best results from these patients, what what have you personally learned? What what are maybe some tips uh, that you could share with other chiropractors about lumbar spinal stenosis? And then I also want to get into your experience on these multidisciplinary panels. So I think those are the really interesting tidbits, perhaps. Sure. Well, probably the biggest thing that I think that you know chiropractors need to kind of look at when it comes to spinal stenosis is that you know giving our aging population. It's, it really stands to reason that we're going to be seeing more and more stenosis patients. Um, even right now, it's the most common reason that seniors uh, will, go in, will go in for spine surgery. So um, it's, it's, an, it's a condition that we think will have an increasing prevalence as, as time goes on here, as, as our population does continue to age. And most of these patients should undergo some trial of conservative non-operative treatment before they go to the surgeon. Um, However, from, from a non-operative standpoint, and you know, what, what our research has shown is nobody really has that perfect answer to dealing with it yet. Uh, the quality of the evidence out there is really low, and so it's hard to make, for us to make conclusions, and that gets really frustrating. And you know, in, in the world of systematic reviews, it always seems that, uh, or often seems like the answer that you come up with is more research is needed. Well, again, that's, that's, that's where we are on spinal stenosis, is we really need to, to do more work on it to to see what we should be, what our approach should be with uh, with these patients. But having said that, I'm I'm totally convinced that chiropractors need to should have a place in the diagnosis and management of spinal stenosis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what what are some of the treatments or available options that chiropractors have for them from a conservative perspective that have some literature to support? Well, in, I mean, from a chiropractic standpoint, you know, the first thing we, everybody probably looks at is, is adjusting. Um, and so that was actually what our first review on that was on chiropractic uh, treatment uh, of spinal stenosis. And it was, you know, there wasn't many studies. I think there was about six studies, and I think there was only about 70 patients. That included case reports. Uh, so, and they weren't all great, very good quality. So, you know, again, we're starting from not a great evidence base, but the, the direction of the results that most of those studies had looked positive. So, you know, manual therapy is, you know, whether you're doing um, adjustments or some mobilizations or something, manual therapy definitely looks like it could have a place. Um, certainly exercise is something that has been uh, studied more. Um, and so those are probably the two things in office. Uh, that a chiropractor could could be looking at as their their first options, but even in the exercise world, there's still not uh, not that much known as to what's the best type of exercise. Like there have been studies where you know you look at putting people on an exercise bike or um, having them do uh, treadmill walking you know, with a with a halter on to try and apply some traction to the spine. And again, no type of exercise has come out as being any 
really any better than the others thus far. Right. Um, but the other, I think one of the other things and one of the areas that I think we as chiropractors need to probably get a little better at is making those referrals out. Um, if you, you know, try it, if you do try a, a bit of a trial of conservative therapy and it's not making a lot of change, well then referring them back to their family doctor or to somebody like a physiatrist, um, because there, there are some medications that they could be trying, um, epidural steroid injections. Um, there's, there's other things that other professionals could be doing. And so I think, you know, we, uh, we could probably be doing a bit better at, uh, getting patients in front of those other professionals a little faster if, if we aren't seeing a great response on our end and just continuing to co-manage. Sure. Sure. Well, let's talk about these multidisciplinary panels that you've been on. I'm, I'm really curious to hear about your experience with that and, and what are they like to be on? Well, this, this, this one has been, uh, it's been really outstanding. Um, the, the task force had existed for a f- couple of years before I was brought on, but I was actually the first chiropractor that they brought on. And I was, uh, you know, when I was first approached, it was actually uh, the two co-chairs, uh, Christy Tompkins Lane. She's, she's a researcher at Mount Royal University here in Calgary. And she and I had, had worked, been doing some work on a project. And uh, the co-chair, Marcus Mello, when, uh, he's over in Germany or Switzerland, um, and, you know, when they approached me, I was a little nervous. I'm like, well, there's a bunch of other professionals. What are they going to think of adding a chiropractor on? And um, the sense that I got was that it just made sense for a chiropractor to be on board as part of the panel. Um, since then, Mike Schneider has also joined the, has also joined the, the task force. But um, like I said, I, th- I think chiropractors should have a seat at the table when it comes to managing this condition. And and it seemed to me that really nobody batted an eye when we came on board. There was no, you know, there was nobody saying, oh, what's a chiropractor doing here? Uh, so it's very multidisciplinary. It's international. There's, there's researchers from all over, all over the world. Um, um, and I, I just find that, uh, you know, the co-chairs, Christy and Marcus, do a really good job of keeping us informed and, and fostering a good, respectful environment where everyone has a voice. Um, and, no, you know, there's no... I. I haven't see, really seen any professional politics at all, which has been great. Um, probably the biggest challenge that they have is just the logistics of, of meeting. Um, when you've got people from all over the world, it's, it's tough. Um, but the nice thing is, is with, with email, at least you can, uh, you can keep a communication string going for quite a while. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Skype and email and <laughs> chat. There's so many great ways to keep in touch these days. Now, they, with they've been tr- they've been trying to meet at at ISLs and and some of the other um, some of the other low back big low back conferences, and then they'll try to Skype or or get us to get us people who can't make it in person to at least try to drop in virtually. And that's I think that's a great approach. Yeah, Doctor Super, what's your sense? with this multidisciplinary panel about non-chiropractic treatments and how effective they are. I'm just curious. So Um, maybe things like medication or whatever, like I think people have the sense that, Oh, professions, other professions are so far ahead of us and they've got such a huge knowledge base. Uh, I, th- you know, I, the feeling that I, I get is that I think, you know, well, and especially when you look at some of the, uh, you know, some of the research that's, uh, that's, that's out there is there really isn't a, a magic bullet when it comes to this condition. Um, nobody, I don't think when, I don't get the sense that anybody really feels like they have the answer. I think the surgeons are frustrated. I think, you know, medical specialists are frustrated. The physical therapists, I mean, we're all kind of, it's, it's a tough condition. Um, and so it's, you know, trying to come up with, with a good approach to, to diagnosing and, and managing it and, um, and, and then trying to generate the, the research to support that approach. Excellent. Yeah, that, that's what my sense was that, you know, nobody's particularly shining, uh, and we have a lot of work to do each and every profession to try to advance and get people better. Yeah, and I mean, I'm, that's not a that's not a topic that's exclusive just to spinal stenosis. That's so many musculoskeletal conditions, unfortunately. Oh yeah, that seems like the whole field of spine care yeah. in general. 
Um, I, I, one of the things I'm, I'm really convinced that multidisciplinary approaches are, are, is probably the way to go. Um, you know, working, co- you know, co-managing amongst a, amongst a group of different professions, but, um, it's finding that combination that works best and in a cost effective manner too, because one of the, you know, one of the problems often with multidisciplinary care is that your costs can really start to escalate. So it's, I, I, my guess is that that could be an approach that might be quite helpful, but we just don't have enough evidence to back that up. Sure. Now, another topic that you've written about is uh, core stability. And I was really fascinated by this paper um, because I try to incorporate a lot of exercise into my practice as well. And core stability is uh, one that a lot of clinicians uh, utilize in practice, I'm sure. So the paper that I'm referring to came out in Clinical Journal of Sports Medicine, and this was entitled Core Stability Exercises for Low Back Pain in Athletes, a Systematic Review of the Literature. And it seemed like so many discussions that, uh, you know, we need more evidence. Uh, there's not a ton of evidence to point to, but is is there any evidence that you came up with that core stability is really is it any better than any other kind of exercise to your knowledge? No, not really. And, and you know, the, in our review, we found that there, again, there wasn't enough quality literature to make any conclusions on, on using stability exercises in athletes with low back pain. But, um, and there was actually a, uh, an article published in 2014 in BMC musculoskeletal disorders. I think it was Smith. Um, a big systematic review and meta-analysis, and they found the stability exercises, I mean, they do help patients with back pain, but there wasn't a clinically important difference between stability exercises and any other types of exercise in terms of pain or disability, and that was short, medium, or long-term. So, I mean, it's one of those frustrating, I find it frustrating as a clinician personally, because, you know, when you go and you listen to some of the biomechanics people, um, and like I've, I've been reading Stu McGill's research for years. Um, and it makes a lot of sense why core stability exercises should be good for patients with low back pain. Um, but then, you know, when they've actually done research that's compared that with, you know, even just walking, it's, the results aren't superior. Um, so it is kind of frustrating. I, I've kind of just sort of come to the conclusion for myself in my practice that probably the best type of exercise is the type of exercise that a patient will actually do. So if they'll do course, you know, if they'll do some core stability exercises as part of a routine or part of their, part of a bit of a program, that's great. I think that, like I said, the biomechanics of it makes sense to me and makes sense to a lot of researchers. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, just getting patients active and getting them doing any kind of exercise is probably the best thing. Yeah, that's the exact same conclusion I've come to over the years is whatever whatever will get people active and participating. Some people just, you know, they're, they're not really interested in doing core stability exercises. Um, they'd rather walk or, or do whatever, or do yoga. Um, and so, you know, if it's going to be, you certainly want to include their, their values, right? Like what we talked about before. So if that's not a part of what they want to do, then it's going to be a tough sell and there's not a ton of evidence to support it in the first place. So, uh, yeah, I, I find with so many patients, you know, when you, when you're in with them and you're, you have that conversation with like, well, what do you do for exercise? I really like to try to get them to quantify how much they're doing. Um, you know, and even if they say, oh yeah, well, I get out for a walk two or three times a week. Well, how long is that walk? Um, because I mean, we'd ideally like to see you probably doing the equivalent of yeah, near 30, 30 minutes a day. Um, and there's just so many patients who don't hit anywhere near that threshold. So, you know, that's where I think a lot of patient education and finding different ways to motivate, uh, motivate them to get themselves up into that, into those, those numbers. And that's actually where I think it's been great where things like uh, activity monitors have really taken off commercially, you know, Fitbits and, and, you know, some of the, some of the other tracking devices. I think those are great for helping motivate patients and anybody in the general public to, to be more active. Oh, definitely. And that, that'd be a great way to objectify your care as well. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and yeah, you could even use it as an outcome. Like, well, when you have less pain, then uh, you should be able to exercise and, and be more active with, with less difficulty. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's get on to our next topic, and that is pregnancy and chiropractic. Your articles have addressed the safety of chiropractic in pregnancy, the treatment of back pain during pregnancy, adverse events, patient experiences, and attitudes toward chiropractic by obstetricians. So you've done a lot of work in this area. Uh, what are some of the key messages that we should take away from your studies? And perhaps we could talk about the safety of chiropractic during pregnancy first. Sure. Well, I've, I've been part of a couple of studies where we've looked at, at safety. Uh, the first one was where we just actually uh, surveyed some clinicians and asked them, you know, do you feel like it's safe? And, you know, overwhelmingly, the clinicians did think, yeah, chiropractic for uh, for pregnancy does it does seem, you know, pregnant patients does seem quite safe. Um, you know, as long as you're making sure, trying to make sure that you can rule out any red potential red flags and that you're monitoring the patients, you know, their overall health statuses. Um, but then we also did a, a systematic, kind of a systematic review. It was more of a critical review where we tried to look for papers that identified adverse events following following uh, an adjustment uh, in both pregnant and postpartum patients. And we were really only able to find five papers, and that was on about seven different patients that reported any kind of adverse. Uh, two of those Two of those patients were postpartum. Five of them were pregnant. Three of those only had kind of minor post-treatment soreness that went away within a week. And then the other two had, you know, a severe adverse effect. Uh, but only one of those was actually after getting adjusted by a chiropractor. The other was actually by a medical practitioner in Germany. Um, and the same goes for postpartum patients. Only one of those who'd had, an, you know, kind of a significant adverse event uh, had been treated by a chiropractor. The other one had been by a physical therapist. So, um, that's all we could find in the literature. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a fairly small number. So that's, that's positive, but there's definitely a need for more research to identify possible adverse events in this population. Like there isn't any population, but it, it seemed like a good start at least. Definitely. How about the effectiveness of chiropractic care during pregnancy? Well, this would actually come from the paper that we wrote together, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, well, we were only able to, we only found a small number of studies and they weren't overly high in quality, but again, the trend towards improvement for patients with low back, you know, pregnant patients with low back pain, it, it's, it looked positive. Um, again, you know, there's, this is one of those papers where we need more research and there have been some studies published since that have been better quality and, and they're continuing to support this finding. Like I know, uh, there's some, there was a good article, uh, a good study that came out of Switzerland in the last year or two that looked that looked quite positive. So, you know, the trend that trend looks looks good. So again, if there's pregnant patients with with back pain, I, you know, I I'm absolutely convinced that chiropractors again should be part of their healthcare team. Right, and, and there was uh, and there, helping them deal with that. Yeah, absolutely. There there was another really good paper that came out of Logan, or at least uh, one of the lead authors from, was from Logan. I think there are jointly doing it with, uh, oh, I want to say St. Louis University or something like that. Um, and they, they also had good results. Uh, they included chiropractic care and part of the global package of care for women, and, uh, and they, they got nice results for that. So um, how about patient perceptions of chiropractic care during pregnancy? Yeah, we did. Uh, we, this was a qualitative study that we did. Uh, I was actually with. I was supervising some students from CMCC, and this was an area that they really wanted to explore. So we we interviewed some patients and some practitioners, um, and the patient the patient experiences that it, it was you know patient sent very patient centered. They found it a safe. They found it effective, and they found that their experiences with seeing a chiropractor during pregnancy were were very positive. So it was kind of you know it was it was all a pretty happy message and you know we also asked like did you have any issues any problems and none of the none of the participants really identified any which was again really good and as that was a student project it wasn't a huge one but it was you know we published it and again it should probably prompt more work in the future yeah that's that's really interesting i mean i think most of us in practice who see pregnant moms 
get the same kind of message, uh, same kind of feedback. So that's great. Now, what about attitudes of obstetricians toward chiropractors? Was that also as happy of a message? Not really. Um, well, it was, it was, this was actually, it was actually really interesting. So we surveyed, uh, surveyed obstetricians in Canada. This was actually, um, basically took the protocol that, uh, Jason Bussey at, at uh, McMaster had previously surveyed, uh, he previously surveyed orthopedic surgeons in Canada, um, to get their, their attitudes. And so Jason was part of, you know, we, he was on this team as well. And so we kind of took their protocol and, and moved it over to the obstetrics world. Um, and what we found is that there was pretty much three equally sized groups, about a third, a third, a third. There were some who really liked chiropractors and referred to us. And those typically, uh, were ones who'd had positive experiences themselves with chiropractic, like personally. Um, there were those who didn't like chiropractors and those who just, they didn't know enough about us to have any kind of opinion. They were very neutral. Um, so it was it was good to see that you know there was definitely a body of them who supported chiropractic care for, during pregnancy, um, but it was it was also kind of indicative that we we really need to do a better job of interprofessional education as to what we do. We also asked them for comments uh, and looked at that qualitatively, and you know some of the complaints that some of them voiced were ones that you know we've heard as a profession for a long time. Um, you know, things like over-treatment or, you know, there was definitely some that were, I think, misinformed about the stroke issue. Um, so, you know, they had, you know, there was some fear and apprehension or, and a bit of distrust in some of those who had negative attitudes. Um, so, again, I think that interprofessional education piece could, could is important going forward, not just on the pregnancy issue, but, you know, in, uh, for the just for the profession at large, um, I think we need to, to start to be trying to do a better better job of that of establishing relation better relationships with uh, with our colleagues in other professions. Very good. Yeah, we have room for improvement for sure. Especially looking at those numbers one third, one third, and one third. Um, I'm kind of surprised by the stroke issue that somebody brought that up, but uh, I do find that pretty interesting. Um, yeah, <laughs> interesting. It's, you know, and there was I think I can't remember the exact number, but there were a few people who voiced concern about the stroke issue and. Um, you know, it's, it's probably what they remembered was something that had been sensationalized in the media quite a while ago. And they probably, you know, it's not their world. They don't live, you know, they, I'm sure probably haven't read that some of the findings of the neck pain task force and some of the other work that Cassidy and Cote have done on, on stroke since. And so they're probably just not aware of those, of that research. That's just not their world. Yeah, for sure. And it, it's hard enough for, for us uh, as chiropractors to keep up on, on all of this, to be honest. So, uh, Only so much reading you can do in a day. Hey? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, exactly. So another thing that I really uh, wanted to get into um, on today's call was the fact that you're now the editor of uh, the Journal of the Canadian Chiropractic Association. And I just am curious, what's it like being an editor of a chiropractic journal. It's, it's an interesting job. And, uh, you know, even going into it, I wasn't, I wasn't sure what I was getting myself into. Our, our previous editor, Dr. Alan Godley, he'd been the editor for at least 25 years. And I'd been slowly working my way up through the ranks, uh, you know, first as a peer reviewer, then as an editorial board member, and then assistant editor and associate editor. Um, but Alan, you know, Alan ran the journal so well and really without a lot of help. And when he told us that he was going to be retiring, I mean, none of us actually thought he'd ever retire. Um, so when I kind of got tapped on the, on the shoulder as being the next person in, um, I wasn't really sure what I was getting myself into, but it's, it's a busy job and it's really different from seeing patients or even from doing research in that it's each each edition of the journal, we do four editions a year. Each edition is uh, it's like a huge project. You know, I look at it as a big project with s several small projects, you know, underneath that umbrella. And each article that we have in it is that small project. So, um, and they're always at different phases. Um, so, I mean, it starts at the very beginning, which is trying to get you know researchers to submit papers to us. 
um, and then getting them through the peer review process and then making decisions on papers and then taking any articles that are accepted and getting them ready for press. So every day you're kind of juggling between all of those different tasks between different editions. Um, and you're trying to maintain your standards and trying to keep everything kind of to a, lull, a dull roar and put out fires when, when needed. Um, so, you know, and say when you're approaching time to release an edition, that, you know, that that can be a really, really busy time. And that's kind of where I'm standing right now because we're getting ready to release the June edition. And so there's a lot of working with the authors and, and reviewing and just making sure everything's just right before we can release it. Uh, but then at the same time, you're also doing a lot of planning because you need to be looking ahead. So the June edition will wrap up and then I'll be straight into the September edition. Uh, it's starting to get it ready. We have most of the papers accepted that'll probably go into it. But then at the same time, we're also already, we're receiving articles for the December edition, which is our sports issue. Um, so there's, you know, free, you know, the next, there's always the current one you're working on, but you're, st- you're also, having to keep tabs and keep on top of the next two or three editions after that as well. Yeah. And then add on a PhD and some practice. <laughs> it's a lot of work you know, and, a, and a young family. And I, I don't sleep a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I hear you, Ken. I hear you. It's a, uh, it's a lot of stuff. So case studies are an obvious immediate contribution to the literature uh, from chiropractors, but what other ways can chiropractors get involved in advancing chiropractic research? And I don't want to belittle case studies by any means. They're a really important contribution, but are there other ways that chiropractors can get involved? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, first, I totally agree with you. The case studies are, they're actually a great place for any chiropractor to get started. You know, if you've got a great case or maybe a series of cases on a certain condition, or if you see something really weird, Writing it up, just getting into the process of writing it up is a great introduction. And if you don't know how to write write something up or the thought of it is, of writing is, is horrifying, ask for help. Like Get in contact with, with whatever chiropractic school you went to and, and see if their research department can help you. Can help you. They're often more than, more than happy to do so. Um, but the, one of the big things that I see is, and I think might be kind of the future for getting clinicians involved in in research is is the idea of practice-based research networks um there's i know there's already a few of those going in the states um i know cheryl hawk's been involved with pbrns for for quite a while uh in europe there's there's been some uh denmark they've had some some pbrns get started and australia's got a really large one that they're that they're getting underway and right up here in canada right now there's there's a movement to really get some practice-based research networks going uh, Andre Bouchiers is, he's sort of in tr- charge of that through the Canadian Chiropractic Guideline Initiatives. A, a PBRN is a really great way for a chiropractor to, in the field to get involved because you, you open up your clinic to help with, with data collection. So it's kind of like being like a bit of a clinical laboratory. Um, they're a huge undertaking, but it's a direction that I think is going to show a lot of promise and, and you certainly see it a lot in other health professions. So I think we're really just starting to tap into that. But it could be a great way for clinicians to get involved and, and be a part of something. Um, and in being part of that, you actually learn a lot um, about your your own clinic in terms of the data you're collecting, uh, but also about you know where that network that you're a part of, what's being collected globally, and sort of where you fit in. Yeah. For sure. For sure. There's so many different ways that chiropractors, I think, can get involved. Uh, I really like that idea, the practice-based research network. As you say, there are several out there. Um, I just referred uh, my brother to uh, a practice-based research network here. Um, Actually, it's um, done by Katie Pullman, uh, fulfilling her uh, PhD. So. The pediatric uh, one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So there, there are lots of uh, cool studies that are going on. Chiropractors can get involved. Um, you mentioned Cheryl Hawk. Yeah, she's doing some great work. I had her on the podcast a couple of months ago. She was telling us about that. Um, yep, there, there are so many different ways. It's, it's great. And, you know, another thing that chiropractors could get involved in are maybe some literature syntheses. Um, literature reviews, these sorts of things. Um, and then definitely get involved, uh, if, if you can with a chiropractic college, if you have one close to you 
or perhaps even universities, um, you know, independent yeah, universities. I was, I was going to say that too. I think, you know, for a lot of people, you know, geographically, they're not close to their, to their chiropractic college, but almost everybody's got a university nearby somewhere. Um, and especially if they have, you know, any type of, you know, say a physical education or kinesiology program, or certainly if they've got a medical program or any kind of health sciences programs, there's gonna, there's bound to be lots of researchers around there. And if you have a research question, it's just a matter of kind of, you know, trying to make that initial step and make that initial contact and, and see if you can develop a relationship and start developing some projects. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I, I can't tell you how many proposals or, uh, or questions actually people have who come to our university, come to our department in particular and ask us to evaluate a product. Maybe they've created a product that is involved with exercise or something like that, or, or there's a clinician that has, you know, seen some patients that want to get some of the stuff documented. So I think it's a great way. Uh, You don't have to rely on a chiropractic school per se. Uh, And if you know someone at a university, even better, you know, get your foot in the door that way. Uh, But that's just one other avenue that I think is uh, quite effective because we've helped several of these uh, people that have approached our department. I, I can tell you, at least with our department, we try to probably fit at least 40 to 50% of the requests that come in. Uh, we get somebody at the school talking with them and it may or may not be a fit, but at least uh, the conversation continues uh, for a little while. So, yeah, it's, you know, and it, in, in Canada, we're really spoiled because, you know, we've got CMCC that has, you know, a very strong research program and a strong research tradition UQTR has again has you know some excellent researchers there and and they're they're always producing making output but we've also got the research chairs and there's basically a research chair in every province going across the country uh, like in my own province here in Alberta we're incredibly fortunate we've got two you know enormous names in chiropractic uh, Greg Kochuk's up at the University of Alberta and Walter Herzog's at the University of Calgary so we've got two huge names in our province. And they're, they do a great job of help percolating, you know, different research ideas uh, the clinicians do come up with. Um, and it's nice that we've got that kind of coast-to-coast in Canada. And all of those research chairs, I think, do a really good job of trying to engage with the profession and try to, you know, find those people who are interested in research and try to, you know, pull them into the lab a little bit and, and get, help get them involved. So. Uh, yeah, the fact that you can do that down in, in Miami is is fantastic. Yeah, well, I I really like that idea that you had there about you know getting people from coast to coast, getting clinicians involved. You know, clinicians have great ideas, and sometimes we as researchers get so focused on whatever we do, and we sometimes miss out on some really interesting ideas. And uh, I always appreciate talking with uh, chiropractors in practice because. I always learn something from, from every exchange. And so just getting them involved would be, would be great. I'd love to see more of that. So Dr. Stuber, one of the, one of the goals of the podcast is to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to actually end up pursuing research careers in chiropractic science. Can you offer any advice to aspiring chiropractors who wish to do basically what we do? (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, probably, you know, one thing that I, because I'll have students ask me about this as well. And, you know, one of the things that I always emphasize is, you know, you don't get into research for the money or the security or the, or the glory by any means. You basically get into it because you kind of can't help it. And you're sort of that relentless personality who's inquisitive and just has to pursue a question until you kind of got it as far as you can get in terms of trying to find an answer. Um, so, and that's not for everybody. Um, but it's, I think it is for probably more, there's probably more people who'd like to be involved in research than we know. And we need to try to develop that, that body of, of students and practitioners, uh, to help, you know, kind of get them pointed into getting involved with things. For me, I think there are kind of three big things that really moved research into being sort of part of my regular daily diet. Uh, the first thing was, was getting, getting my master's degree, like, Getting that formal training um, and kind of learning what I 
learning all the things that I didn't know um, was huge. Um, and so I think getting some formal training in research is, is pretty much vital. Uh, now, that doesn't have to be a master's degree. It could be a certificate course or it could be even just a, uh, you know, a good complete course in research methods. Um, but you know, I think formal training is really important. Then the other thing I think is just developing a good network of other kind of like-minded people who are motivated and goal-oriented and people that you can work with with, with a mutual respect. Um, you know, so you know, reaching out to to some of the researchers in your area, like like we've been talking about, either with the local university or your chiropractic college or or something like that, and find somebody who you can work with and and develop a, a bit of a network with them. Um, I it's pretty rare I've ever meet a you know one of the chiropractors with a PhD, a DC PhD, who isn't very supportive of any kind of aspiring chiropractic researchers. Most of them were in in that boat at one point or another themselves, and and I think most of the DC PhDs that I that I know are, are great mentors for helping foster people who have an interest in doing research. So, I mean, I, I think of myself as incredibly fortunate when I when I think of all of the people that I've worked with, yourself included, um, and they've all everybody's kind of contributed a bit to help steer my career in the direction that it's moved in. Um, and then the last thing is is just making sure you have access to resources. Um, one of the biggest things for me, I think, in my research career was when CMCC asked me to come on board with the adjunct appointment because uh, it really it'll, it gave me access to things like their library and the research ethics board, um, and it made me kind of feel like I was part of a research community. Um, it gave me some great colleagues to work with, and uh, and also allowed me to access students and you know. A, Fair number of my publications, I think probably four or five of them, have been out of student projects that I've supervised. So that's uh, that's been a great experience for me. Hopefully for them too. But um, I, I think staying in touch, staying in touch with your college is, is a great idea if you can, or at least reaching out to to some of your local resources and and finding out what you can access. And like I said, having a good relationship with anybody with a DC PhD who. Uh, uh, that's, I think that's, that's also a great first step. Um, one of the other things I'd say is don't be intimidated by, uh, by going, going to try to do some work with people from other health professions. Um, I've worked with, I've now worked with all sorts of medical specialists on different research projects and, you know, other pr- professionals from other, from other professions. And you, it's, I think if everybody goes in with a healthy, respectful attitude towards, towards everyone else, it, it can just work really, we can all work together really well. Kent, that was just great advice. I, I really appreciate that summary. I think there were some amazing tips that you had there for chiropractors. So thank you so much. And uh, before we get going uh, on the talk today, do you have any last minute uh, words of wisdom or, words of wisdom or uh, concluding remarks that you'd like to make? I, you know, I think a lot of the things that I've done in my career have have come from asking questions. You know, whether that's just with patients or from a research standpoint. You know, with patients, it's just always trying to do better. And and I find a lot of my best research questions come out of the patients that I struggle with the most. Um, and that can lead to looking for answers. And if I can't find those answers, it's it can lead to a project. Um, one of the other things that you know, I think a lot of the opportunities that I've been able to be part of. They've just come from being involved, you know, being involved in the profession, uh, being involved in the community. And I think that's one thing as a profession that I, I, I kind of caution us about is there's sometimes been that tendency for chiropractors to sort of silo themselves and not get involved and not necessarily collaborate with, with others. And so whether that's in your profession, you know, interprofessionally or in the community, like get in, get involved. I think that's, when people get isolated, that it can lead to bad habits and, and lead to negative edit, attitudes. Um, I think if we work together more often, more often that it just might help us to be more cohesive with other health professions and in the community. Um, and then, I mean, the last thing for me is probably the biggest thing is I've got an incredibly supportive family that has supported all of, you know, all of the research work that I've done and, uh, and I, I just couldn't be more grateful. My wife is is incredibly support supportive. 
my kids, uh, my boys are both in school and they think it's kind of cool that dad's in school at the same time as they are. And, um, <laughs> Without that, I, th- I I wouldn't be able to do any of this, and and so I'm really grateful for them and and for everybody who's helped me along the way. And it's you know they always say it takes a village, and and it it really does. Perfect. Well, those those are really uh, refreshing comments and uh, just down to earth. I love that, and it's so true. Everything you said about family and all the support. It, definitely takes a village to to make this kind of thing happen. But if you're drawn to it, we certainly need you in the profession. And we need all of those uh, people who might be interested to to step up, to get involved in chiropractic research, and let's advance this profession. Let's get it going. I, I, I think the biggest thing that I have found is it is incredibly rare for me, since I've been involved in research, to have a door closed on me. Um, whenever... I feel like whenever I reach out, reach out to other chiropractic researchers, you know, folks like you, um, I, you don't get a lot of no's. You know, it's, it's just a matter of, yeah, just reach out uh, to, to people in the chiropractic research community. And we, I think we do actually a pretty good job of working together and trying to support one another. So, you know, people in the profession just shouldn't be afraid to, to, to get in touch and, and try to get involved. Absolutely. That's been exactly my experience as well. Very few doors have been closed. Most people have just been overwhelmingly positive and really go out of their way to try to help you. So that's, that's phenomenal. Well, Dr. Stuber, I really appreciate you being on the call today. It's been uh, just a a pleasure to chat with you and, and I hope we can do this again sometime. I'd, I'd love to. Thanks so much for having me, Dean. Okay. Bye for now. All right. Take care.